Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And as you're turning there, I just want to uh, ask you to think about that hymn for a moment we just sang, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Uh, The author of that was William, we say Cooper, even though it looks like Cowper to us American eyes, William Cooper. And uh, let me see what kind of uh, hymn scholars we have out here. Um, Do you know the name of the fella that uh, there is a fountain filled with blood, William Cooper? Do you know the name of the fella that was the one that kind of got with uh, William Cooper and encouraged him, and together they put out a hymnal that had a bunch of the most wonderful hymns of the faith in it. Do you remember who that was? Can you shout it out? John Newton, star for the lady down here. See me after the church for a hug and a kiss. That's my wife there if you're watching us. Okay. Um, John Newton, amazing grace, right? Uh, John Newton was a bubbly, vivacious guy. You know, he'd been slave, saved out of being a slave trader, and he was so grateful that God could save a wretch like him. You know, he knew that if you provide the wretch, the Lord will provide the Savior. And he had that kind of bubbly, outgoing personality that drives a bunch of more introverted people crazy, you know. William Cooper was more of an introverted person. He was very often despondent and very depressed uh, often. In fact, I think two or three times during his lifetime, he uh, tried to take his own life. Um, And so for him, just getting up and facing a day was a victory. Not everybody has the bubbly, extroverted personality of a John Newton, but God can use everyone. And not only did God use John Newton to write Amazing Grace, the most famous and most wonderful hymn of all time, but also used his buddy William Cooper, who John Newton poured into and oftentimes helped get him to the other side of a depression or discouragement, he used him to write that wonderful hymn we just read, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, and a less known one, but a very awesome one, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. In our days, he would be probably very highly medicated to deal with what he was going through there, but there was a creative genius in there, and it came out in hymns like the one that were poured out. And so whether you're a super bubbly person or an introverted person, it's it's, uh, hard to just get through a day. God can use you. Uh, The Lord loves you. We love you. And uh, don't ever think you don't matter. There may be a hymn for the church in your struggle that comes out, recognizing that God providentially cares for you even when you're down or discouraged, uh, and think about what we just sang. There is a fountain filled with blood. Can you imagine this dear man that so struggled just to get up and face a day, sitting down and writing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood. Chokes you up, doesn't it? And so God can use you how you are. He used both of them together, and it was great. And uh, it was the only hymns was the famous hymn book. A couple hundred from John Newton, who like extroverts do, probably just put stuff out all the time. And about 60 or so from, uh, from William Cooper. 
Luke chapter 23. We're going to put our affirmation on the board. This kind of has been guiding us for these last chapters as we've looked at Luke and what Luke, the author's purpose was in writing, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Uh, we're going to put it up on, here on the board for you. Luke 24, 46 and 47. Say this with me. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Well, we have seen the death of Christ for our sins. We have looked last week at his burial. And next week we'll be looking at his resurrection from the grave. Last week we did look at the burial of Jesus Christ. And I just want to take a moment to read those verses to, uh, together again. Luke 23, 50, uh, down through uh, 56, the last part of the chapter. It says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. Now in last week's message, we talked about who this man was and how Nicodemus was with him as John's gospel reports and the wonderful thing they did in giving Jesus' body a burial. It says, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was honed out of the rock, cut out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now last week, I told you I was going to look at this day again, and even as they laid the body of Jesus in the ground, what we were going to look at what his spirit was probably doing during that time when his body was laid in the ground. Last week we saw how Joseph and Nicodemus gave great care to getting that body, caring for it, wrapping it in clean linen, placing it in Joseph's unused tomb before sundown. They intended to come back on Sunday and embalm Jesus. But where was Jesus' spirit when his body was in the tomb? That's the question we want to look at today. Sometimes we refer to this day that we're looking at as Silent Saturday. We call Good Friday the day that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We think of Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday is when he rose from the grave. But between the Friday and the Sunday was the middle day. It was Saturday, and sometimes it's called Silent Saturday. Uh, we wonder what was happening then. And from outward appearances, there wasn't a whole lot happening. Jesus' disciples were bewildered and grieving his death to be sure. He had told them he was going to rise on the third day, but they were struggling to believe that. Death is the final reality, the only final reality they'd ever seen, except for when Jesus raised Lazarus. And since Jesus wasn't here... How could he raise himself? Well, the scripture says that was precisely what was going to happen. But death uh, is such a cruel uh, reminder and sense of finality. Most of the religious leaders were thinking they had gotten rid of their Jesus problem. You know, we've dealt with that. We got him killed. Whew, don't have to worry about that competition anymore. Now we can go on to putting our religious expectations on the people and uh, we can get on with our uh, monopoly on that. Pilate was probably wondering how he was going to spin all this to his superiors back in Rome, you know, uh, the events. And I would have loved to have seen the report he sent on about how he had declared Jesus innocent and had him killed anyway, something that's never happened in world history, you know. There's been somebody killed that later was found to be innocent, but he was found innocent and yet 
crucified, yet executed. When you connect the dots the Bible gives us, though, we see a whole lot more was happening on Silent Saturday in the spiritual realm. Just like if you took a sword and you took it out of the sheath and laid the sheath down, nothing's happening with the sheath, but you can do a whole lot with the sword. Jesus' body was laid there in the tomb, but his spirit was like a sword unsheathed as it went into the spiritual realm and did battle for us. The spirit was very active. Uh, Turn back to Luke um, chapter 6, I'm sorry, you're in chapter 23. Look back at verse 40, Uh, again where we talked about this thief on the cross. Um, in verse 39 it says, one of the criminals who were hanging, bla- hanged, blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, here it is, do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, amen, amen, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now a few weeks ago we looked at that together and we thought, well, if Jesus wasn't going to rise from the dead until Sunday, how could he promise that repentant thief that after they both died, later that day, that day they would be with him in paradise? And of course we can simply say that since the Lord's not bound by time, it's always today with him, right? And we also know that if you've trusted Jesus, You have a reserved place in heaven today that you'll get to utilize later on when you die. So theologically, all that's true, uh, and it's a good answer, but I think there's something more to say. And I think looking back to Jesus' teaching on the rich man and Lazarus back in Luke 16, turn back there, kind of helps us understand the more that we're kind of getting at here when we connect these scriptural dots. Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at verse 22. Well, you know what? We've got the time. Let's go to verse 19, and we'll pick it up on the screen there with you in verse 22. It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. He had it made on this earth. He was rich. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, who, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. This was a poor man. Lazarus' name means God helps, so we know that this man knew the Lord. The rich man did not. The rich man's, all of his uh, you know, eggs were in the basket of this life and getting the most out of this life that he could. Lazarus didn't have a very good lot in this life. Verse 21, he desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. I love to share that verse at funerals, you know, because one of the things that moves me so much when you go to a, uh, a funeral and you have a graveside service uh, or you have a, a, in the church or the funeral home and then you go to the graveside is that you've got to do transport the body from the one place to the graveside, right? And it's always been so meaningful to me how the officers give such care in giving that escort to the people going from the building to the graveside. And I love it when the officer gets out of his car at the very end there and puts his hat in his hand and salutes like this right as the, as the people go by. We give great care for that escort. But Luke 16, 22, this little verse teaches that before we do that for the body, the angels have already done that for the soul. Isn't that awesome? There's always already been a heavenly escort dispatched to escort the soul to the presence of the Lord. In this case, Abraham's side, uh, Abraham's bosom. 
And, he, uh, and being in, the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham afar away off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here while you're in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Well, that puts a lot in our minds, doesn't it? Both of these men have died. One knew the Lord and one didn't. One is already receiving some kind of agony who didn't know the Lord, and the other is already receiving some kind of comfort, the one who did know the Lord. And Jesus has a picture, and I puts a picture in our mind of their being in a place where they can somehow see each other, but they are separated by a great chasm. And theologians, of course, struggle to say, is Jesus talking about exactly how it was before he died on the cross? Or is he, for illustrative purposes, telling us something? And either way, it just is, is mind-blowing to think about. Look at how one artist rendered uh, that. My goodness. So on the one side, you've got the departed unrighteous in the pit, uh, experiencing torment. And on the other side, you've got the departed righteous experiencing paradise. And there's a gulf between them, and you can't get from the one side to the other. And as you look at that, and you think about Luke 16, and what Jesus is trying to convey to us as he teaches this, it doesn't look a lot like he's talking about a story. It looks like he's talking about some present reality even as he describes how you can't come back and tell somebody not to go there later on. You've got to do it now uh, because of the, what's in that parable or the story of the rich man and Lazarus that looks like more than a story. So the question I have wondered and as I studied this and others have too is, how does what Jesus teaches in Luke 16 square with all the information that was in the Old Testament about reality after death? And the answer is, it lines up very well, thank you. In fact, it appears that before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the place called Sheol, that's the Hebrew language, or Hades, that's the Greek language, it's the same place, Sheol is Hades, Hades is Sheol, that it was the place where all dead people went, but it had two compartments, so to speak. All the way back in Genesis 37-35, Jacob spoke of Sheol as the place he would go if he died. If, if I die of grief, I'm going to go down to Sheol, he said. Genesis 37-35, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. Now, unfortunately, some translations read grieve, uh, grave there instead of Sheol. Uh, but the word is Sheol, and looks like it's a place, and so it should have been just capitalized and put Sheol in Genesis 37-35 there. Some translations have it that way, others don't. In Deuteronomy, God actually speaks of those He is judging being in a lower part of Sheol. So it's the domain of the dead, but look what Deuteronomy 32-22 says. God says, a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol. So Sheol is the place where departed spirits go in the Old Testament times, but also uh, it's um, 
looks like there's a lower part somehow that uh, is a place where God's wrath is kindled against those that did not know him. Elsewhere, the Bible seems to refer to this part of Sheol as the pit. Like in Revelation 9.1, it says, The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And these demons that are there are allowed to terrorize the earth for a while as they come up to the earth from however and wherever this place is. And we can think of it as below the earth. We can also think in terms of how there's dimensions in our thinking. And it may be just we pull back and there it is, just like we pull back and there heaven is. And it's very interesting to think about. Now, one thing that's very interesting is when you, you know, we know now as believers, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we have an expectation that when we die, our spirits go to heaven. And 1 Corinthians 15 says later believers will get a new body to live on a new earth. And we're, we, we kind of sometimes look for words about heaven in the Old Testament, and you may have heard it. Well, they weren't thinking a lot about heaven in the Old Testament, you know, and that, that was, it all get progressively unfolded and those things. But it's interesting, there is a lot in the Old Testament about saints hoping one day to be on a new earth with God. All the way back to Job, one of the oldest saints, who said, I know my Redeemer lives, and after my body is destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. I know my Redeemer lives, and I'm going to see him at the end, face to face on earth. And he said, my heart yearns within me. We think of Psalms like Psalm 37 that says, hey, the memory of the wicked it will be done for, but the righteous will inherit the land. And in places like Psalm 37, it says six or seven times the righteous will inherit the land, but the memory of the wicked won't be on the land. So Old Testament saints were looking to one day being on a perfect earth with God, just as Adam and Eve had been in the garden. And that's precisely what Revelation 21 and 22 promised later on. So on the one hand, they're talking about after death going to Sheol, a temporary place, and they're looking forward to a final reality of being with God forever. They don't say a lot about heaven. They do say a lot about the kind of things Revelation 21 and 22 talk about, uh, being with God back in a paradise place. Well, in 1 Samuel, Hannah expresses faith that there is life after Sheol for people of faith. 1 Samuel 2.6, she says, the Lord kills and he makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Last week in looking at Luke 23, we saw Psalm 16 speak of the Messiah not being abandoned in Sheol. Psalm 16.10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's the same hope that's in places like Psalm 49.15. It says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me, Selah. But how can God redeem believers from the power of Sheol? How can that happen? And the answer we've already been singing about, the blood of Christ shed in his atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. That's why in Revelation 1, John says when he saw Jesus after 60 years of not seeing Jesus, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Revelations 1, 17 and 18. Well, what I'm going to suggest to you today is that Jesus has already used the keys one time. We're going to look at more about that in just a moment. But do you remember the, how Revelation chapter 5 is talking about how the Redeemer is to be praised in heaven, the Lamb of God? 
And it makes such a big deal about John weeping because no one was worthy to open the seals and begin the next part of redemption history. And then they said, hey, then he saw Jesus, the Lamb of God, one who was slain like a lamb. And he said, behold, the Lamb, he is worthy to open. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the seals. He's worthy. That's the same language that having the keys of Hades means. Uh, He's got the authority. He's got the power. And a couple weeks ago, we were looking at how when Christ died on the cross, remember, he said, it is finished. Vendors would write that on a bill, paid in full. It's just one word, tetelestai. What was finished? What was paid in full? Everything it would take for a sinner to go to heaven with Jesus and later be on a new earth with Jesus instead of hell was finished and completed. The debt we all have before God was paid in full. It was paid off. Now, before the cross, Old Testament believers looked forward in faith to what Christ would do. We see that in Isaiah 53, right? Their great hope that all we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid the iniquities of us all on him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He will die, but you won't allow your Holy One to undergo decay like the psalmist has said. He will prolong his days. His, uh, he, by, my, by that act, my righteous servant will justify many. I'm using Isaiah 53 phrases now. They looked forward to what the Messiah would do for them, or at least the clues were there for them to do that. That was the Old Testament. The New Testament days, and now the days we're in, we look back and we can see what Christ has done on the cross, and we commemorate it by getting baptized in His name when we first believe, and we commemorate it by together taking the Lord's Supper like we're going to in a little bit of time here. Um, Do you remember the old layaway programs? Now, this happened so long ago, I'm not even sure I've got it right, so some of y'all are going to have to help me here. But as I understand a layaway program... You went ahead and went into Sears or wherever, and you went ahead and uh, secured the purchase by getting in on their layaway program, right? It was going to be yours. But a good number of those programs, you couldn't take it home yet, could you? You had to make a payment and make a payment and make a payment, and then finally when it was paid off, what could you do? You could take it home, right? You could bring it home. So believing saints in Old Testament days went to this holding place called Sheol, Hades in the Greek, and it wasn't they could progressively pay off anything back on earth. They were waiting for the payment to be made, and that's what Jesus did on the cross. But they couldn't go to heaven. They couldn't go home with him yet until the payment was made. Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. Now they could go to heaven with him instead of a holding place, a temporary place. Uh, So when an Old Testament saint died, they went to the good part of Sheol. They were awaiting Christ's work on the cross. Once the payment was made, they could go on to heaven. So where did Christ's spirit go while his body was in the tomb? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We put together two passages that are the basis of what the the Apostles' Creed says in the second or third century. But turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, great passage. It's one of the spiritual gifts passages, so that's what comes after the verses we're going to read for today. But look how it starts that wonderful teaching in verses 7 through 10. It says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, When he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to people. 
He gave gifts to men. But what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who is descended is the same one as the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So we're told there that when Jesus ascended on high, after he had descended to the lower parts, he took captivity with him. He took those that were in one place to the other place with him, right? I believe that language is speaking of how he had redeemed them. So that's the first passage. And then turn to 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. It says, For Christ also suffered once for all, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, in that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who were in the past were disobedient. When God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared, in it a few, now he gives this extended uh, parentheses about Noah's day, in it a few, that is eight people were saved through water when they were in the ark. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. The outward act of baptism doesn't save anybody. It's the inward faith that does that preceded it. And a spiritual baptism happens when you are saved. The Holy Spirit goes, comes into your heart. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that, he has gone, now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and power subject to him. He got the keys when he died on the cross. He went to Hades. He went to this place, and um, he used the keys for the first time. We'll talk more about that in just a second, but just a word about the ark. Early Christians, you know, you've heard about using the Jesus fish. The fish is a symbol for uh, what Christ had done in their lives, the fish and the loaves, you know, the miracle, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. But another symbol the early church often used was just putting a little ark boat on things representing Noah's ark. Uh, And the reason they did that was because they remembered this Peter passage, and when Noah and the seven with him went into the ark, and the judgment came, they were lifted out of the waters of judgment because they were inside the ark, they were safe in the ark. And over and over again, the New Testament uses the phrase in Christ to describe believers, or in Him, in Him we have redemption through His blood, right? The forgiveness of sins. And so early believers said, just as Noah and his people went into the ark and were saved when judgment came, I'm going into Christ, I'm in Christ. And because I have trust in him, I'll make it through the judgment to come. And so they did that. So some of that's in that passage there. So here's what we're guessing is that Jesus preached when he went down there, when he ascended into the lower parts like Ephesians talks about. Uh, Not a long message, just the simple truth. You saw in the artist's rendition the possibility of that great chasm that was there. And there he was and probably the thief beside him, the thief that had turned to Christ, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And his first message was to those who probably had believed with the repentant thief at his sight. He may have quoted the psalmist that said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Get ready to come with me. Get ready to leave here and come now to heaven where Enoch and Elijah already are and where I left to come down to earth. Get ready to join them there because the payment has been made. It's now paid in full. 
God's layaway plan is complete. We don't need a holding path for those that have believed anymore because now, from now on, now that the payment's been made for the believer to be absent from the body will be to be present with the Lord, like 2 Corinthians 5.8 says. But then, more than likely, he had a message for the disobedient too, those on the other side. That's what Peter seems to allude to here when he was preaching to those that these departed spirits. He may have said something like this to those who had never admitted their sin and rebellion against God, never cried out to him for salvation. Folks, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18 says that over and over again. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I wish everyone would repent and believe. Oh, that you had repented and believed, but because you didn't, you have to stay here until the great white throne judgment and then you'll go to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Where do we get that concept that the lake of fire, the final reality for the lost, uh, was created for the devil and his angels? Well, that's Matthew 25, 41, where Jesus says to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. After Satan's rebellion, there had to be a place for them to be, have their final reality, uh, and that is the lake of fire. The only ones that need to be there are the devil and his angels, but people didn't need to be there. Now, because of sin, that was going to be the default destination for everybody because we are all in rebellion against God. That's what Jesus did the first time he came so that we wouldn't have to go there. You can go to hell, but please don't. Your sins will have you go there. You'll have to pay, but you don't have to. And that's why Jesus came the first time, the ultimate rescue mission, right? So that no one would have to join Satan and his demons in the lake of fire. For all those that trust him, they're going to get to go to heaven instead. They don't even need to go to the temporary shale now. They go directly into the presence of the Lord because the payment has been made. And so we've got to get our terminology right. We're clearly told in the pages of the New Testament the final reality for the, those that don't know the Lord, those who rejected him, will be the lake of fire. Sheol slash Hades was a temporary place and still is where non-believers go until the final great white throne judgment. Look what Matthew says happened after Christ's resurrection. Matthew 27, 52 and 53, it says, The tombs after Jesus rose were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had gone to their rest were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. Why could they do that? Why could they come out of Sheol slash Hades into their bodies, and then on, be seen, and then out of there? They didn't stay on earth permanently. They went on up to be at the presence of the Lord, and that was made possible because of what Christ did there, more than likely on Silent Saturday. You know, obviously when you start thinking through these things and the scriptures and connecting the dots, more questions come into your mind, you know. And I love how Randy Alcorn's written about heaven, and he posits, and I think it's very plausible, that there's actually the saints in heaven now have some kind of transitional body before they get their final perfect body that 1 Corinthians 15 says that we'll all have one day when we live on a new earth. We should not picture where saints are now with the Lord as being on a cloud strumming a harp. That may be happening, but Jesus said, John 14, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to come rapture you. We're going to, I'm going to come and get you, and you're going to be where I am, right? That's the whole purpose of this thing. So, you know, heaven... 
What's the place he's working on? Well, Revelation 21 and 22 tells us the new Jerusalem, this amazing city that's there. So I think when saints go to heaven now and they're in that whatever that transitional body is, they have a hymnal, a chorus sheet, they're singing praises some, and at the same time they're also got a hammer in a hand and working on the new Jerusalem, getting it ready for all that it's going to be. We're told it's a city that's 1,400 miles uh, wide, it's 1,400 miles high, it's 1,400 miles long, it's that kind of cube, that's enormous. And so I think that heaven is a buzz getting ready for that final reality when that's going to come down and be on the new earth. Well, look at what John writes in Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And uh, as we turn there, we understand that this is uh, the great white throne judgment passage. We're in verse 11 after the verses about Christ's thousand year reign on earth. Verses 11 to 15, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place for them found. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death, and there it is, Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's that great white throne judgment. Believers are already with the Lord. This is the judgment of unbelievers, those who never turned to Christ. Everything they've ever said, thought, done will be evaluated there and it will be punitive. How bad hell will be will be how bad their sins were before God. And of course, we're all wicked sinners before God, but for those who have trusted Christ, their sin isn't dealt with at the great white throne. It was dealt with on the cross of Christ so that God could express his grace and forgiveness toward us. All sin's going to get judged one or two places, either at the cross or at the great white throne judgment. And then it's the lake of fire for those that didn't know the Lord. Notice he says here, the second death is the lake of fire. And those who are in Hades will wind up in the lake of fire. Not the believing ones, they're already in heaven. No believer has had to go to Hades, that temporary compartment, since Christ finished his work. Now they're with the Lord when they die, but for unbelievers, they're still waiting that final judgment. Second death, it's called. Last week I gave you the little rhyme, or it's not really a rhyme. What do I call it? It's a little poem. Uh, if you're only born once, you're going to have to die twice. Not just the physical death, but the spiritual death, the lake of fire as well. Hell, because of your sins. But if you're born twice, you'll only die once. If you receive Christ and turn to him, you're born again, and that second death will have no power over you, over no one that's written in the Lamb's book of life by faith. That is so awesome. Well, when you put these things together, that's why the Apostles' Creed, going back to the early church, this is what it had in mind when it said of Jesus. Here's the words taken from the Apostles' Creed, which the church has been saying for 1,800 years now. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from there he will come to judge the quick and the dead. A whole lot was happening on Silent Saturday. When we get baptized again, we're celebrating the fact that Christ has died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 
He's risen from the dead to show us victory and power over Satan, sin, death, and hell. And that just as we're trusting the preacher to really pull us back up out of that water, that's what we're saying we trust Christ to do when it comes to eternal life. At the Lord's Supper, we've already said we also do that. We also do that. And so if you do not know the Lord, but you want to turn from Him, we've said enough today that you don't want to stand before God at the great white throne judgment. You want to come to Him in faith. I want to give you the opportunity to receive Him now, both in the room and also those watching. Go ahead and bow your heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts, as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.